Let us hear the word of God, Romans 3, verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. The grass withers, the fire fades, for the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, as we begin here today, we often talk, of course, about the issue of fairness and justice. Uh, We hear this broadly in our culture, we hear it in our individual lives, and so on and so forth. And um, oftentimes, we hear something along the lines that if, if something is forced upon us, then that is not fair. And so, you might think of Uh, The video we watched in Sunday school here recently about uh, churches not being allowed to worship. It was forced upon them to stay home, and uh, that's not fair. We might think of the old movie, Braveheart, and the issue of freedom and fairness in in that way. We also often hear the, in the context of choice, that it is not fair if we do not have a choice. And so, obviously, we have the pro-choice movement that highlights this idea. Or to think of another older movie, you might think of the Matrix movies and the ideas of choice and freedom and free will and fate and destiny and so on and so forth. Well, with this in mind, Paul touches on some of these ideas. He says more about it in Romans 9, but he does say some things here for us in this section. Paul, of course, has been responding to objections to his teaching. The things that he has told to us in chapters 1 and 2, some people have said, now wait a minute, Paul. Paul is probably uh, recollecting some conversations he had in the synagogue or elsewhere, and so he is responding to these objections, not just making up Uh, a possible objection. And so for the first one, uh, simply, if we are not saved from God's wrath by keeping God's required religious activities, then why bother doing them? Do they have any benefit at all? And his response simply is, anything God gives us is going to be a blessing. Now, maybe not an ultimate blessing, but there's still going to be blessings even for the unbeliever and even if it's just temporal. He focuses on God's word, but certainly we can apply other things. Now, last time I expanded the point a bit to say that the advantage of these things is far more for those of us who are true believers. Outward religion prompted by the Spirit results in many blessings, both now and 
and forever. And so I added that brief point to start our time last time. <clears throat> and then we looked at the second objection where he says simply, uh, at, uh, the objection is simply this, does our faith, an imperfect faith, and even God's people rejecting the Messiah, does that demonstrate that God is unfaithful? And Paul answers and says, absolutely not. Our behavior does not change God. His character is always reliable. We are the problem because we sin. God is blameless, on the other hand, when he judges us for our sin. And no one can judge God for wrongdoing. Now, we may struggle to understand God's ways, but God is always faithful to himself and to his promises. So we come here now today to the two remaining objections, and they go together, and some say they are more or less identical. Some say there's a little bit of a difference between the two, um, and I would fall into that latter camp, but uh, certainly they go together. And once again, uh, Paul here is probably not speaking abstractly, but referring to conversations he had. So verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust to inflict wrath? I speak as a man. All right. Now, first of all, notice how verse 5 is very much like verse 3. You might recall from last time in verse 3, Paul asks the question in such a way to give the intended answer. And the intended answer is no. And the same is true here. The intended answer to his question, is God unjust to inflict wrath? The assumed answer here is no. And he is very deliberate on how he does that for us in the Greek. Okay. Then if we were to bring in verse 6, it says, he says specifically, certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? And so this is like verse 4. Paul responded with that response and he does it again. And so the strongest way to say no in Greek is how Paul responds to these questions. The best translation is probably, may it never be. But we tend to paraphrase it, right? Certainly not, God forbid, don't even think like that, something to that effect. And notice that in this uh, response, Paul gives the added statement here, I speak like a man. I'm giving you a human idea here. Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? That's, that's a human way of thinking, or specifically, a sinful human way of thinking. The first question, Paul does not rebuke the question. He answers it. And the second question, notice he doesn't rebuke the question. He answers it by saying definitively, no. Now he does the same thing, but he's even rebuking the question. This is a, a sinful question, really. Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? That's just absurd. And so God is not the problem. We are, again, is what he is saying. Now, let's uh, pause here a moment. What is causing Paul such heartburn on this issue? Well, you recall from last time, um, I called to our attention the word for faith or trust. And four times he uses that word. There are different forms like verbs and nouns and adjectives and such. But four times. In verse 2, the New King James gives us the word committed. Uh, you could translate it as entrusted, which would fit better of showing this. And then in verse 3, 
right? Well, um, what if some did not believe or trust? Will their unbelief or lack of trust make the faithfulness or trustworthiness of God without effect? So those four words all go together. And you recall that I mentioned that Paul is doing this because faith is such an important idea for him in Romans. Well, he's doing the same thing now, but with a different word. And that's the word righteous or just. Again, it's found in various forms, you know, verbs and adjectives and so on. But five different times. The first one is in verse 4. The quotation from Psalm 51, that you may be justified. Here it has the meaning of being vindicated. Then in verse 5, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust or unrighteous who inflicts wrath? And then the last one is in verse 8. Their condemnation is just or righteous. So again, Paul is being very deliberate by giving us these words. And these two words, faith or trust or belief, and righteous, unrighteousness, just, all those, right? They're really the, at the heart of what he's trying to communicate to us. If you go back to chapter 1, here just a moment, you recall verses 16 and 17. This is the theme verse of all of Romans. The theme two verses here in this case. And uh, let me read it again. Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. There's the one word for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness, there's the other word, of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. You see, he's using these two words over and over again. And in his objections, uh, in responding to the objections, I should say, it's no surprise that he brings us back to these two key ideas. And as I mentioned last time, beginning especially in verse 27 in chapter 3, taking us through chapter 4, he's going to develop the idea of faith. He does the same thing with this term righteous. In verses 21 to 26, he's going to give us a much fuller definition of righteousness here. And... Um, and so just, again, just to draw out for you this emphasis that Paul is making that may be somewhat obscured in the English, though it even so is uh, clear enough. And so when facing objections, right, let's point to the main ideas. I mean, it's, it's a nice pattern to follow, and certainly that's what Paul is doing. All right, so let's get back then to our point. When we are not righteous and we break God's law, and God judges us for our sin, this demonstrates that God is righteous. Seems like a rather straightforward idea. But people are objecting to that. It doesn't seem fair. It, it, it may seem fair when God is judging the wicked out there, right? But what about when God judges his own people? Israel or the church, that doesn't seem so righteous. And this is probably what he's addressing. But nevertheless, we can expand the idea okay, to judging anyone in their sin. So let me just give you this illustration. Uh, if you were to go into the courtroom and the judge were to render a verdict, 
we would say that he is being just or unjust depending on how he rules. So say someone uh, commits a crime and he comes before the judge and the judge sees the evidence and so forth, hears the testimony, and yeah, the person did it. So he says, okay, you're going to be judged for this amount of time in jail or fine or whatever it happens to be. Okay, and if that's according to what happened, we'd say he is being just, right? But if he looks at the evidence and says, oh, I'm going to say they're innocent and it's contrary to all the evidence, we say they are being unjust. And so Paul here is saying, wait a minute, how can God be unjust when he looks at the evidence and says, sinner, 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 how can he be unjust if he punishes us? It's a human argument to say that God's the problem for our sin. And so here's some of what he is uh, driving at. But there does seem to be an added thought. And maybe this is spilling into the fourth objection a bit too much. But some have tried to say that the fourth objection has an idea here too. And that is this. When God punishes us for our sin, it shows forth God's righteousness. Or to put it another way, it makes him look good. So why aren't we receiving some reward for making God look good? If our unrighteousness is a foil to highlight God's righteousness, how can he punish those who make him look so good? Now, when I use the term foil, this is a a term here that's not talking about aluminum foil or something. Um, We're talking about a contrast. Contrast between characters in a movie or a book or something like that. And the one uh, character is a contrast to the other, a foil. This one is a certain way and the other one is the contrast so let me give you just a, a few examples here um, uh, the lord of the rings movies have been on the last few nights on uh, i forget what channel it is but anyway boromir is a contrast to faramir you do see that in the movies but you especially see it in the book uh, of tolkien it's a total contrast boromir right He tries to take the ring from Frodo. He attacks Frodo, and he ends up dead. Faramir, on the other hand, again, especially in the book, he does not want the ring, and he helps Frodo, and uh, he ends up blessed in the end. Yes, he tries to obey his father, and he's shot down. He has uh, the black breath on him and such, but Aragorn revives him, and he marries Eowyn, and everything ends up good in the end because he was a true man of Numenor whereas Boromir was not. The foil, the contrast is very stark. So as you look at Boromir, you see how great Faramir is, and vice versa. Or to use an everyday example, the media sets up Trump and conservatives and the rest as a foil to Biden and to the liberals. And the more terrible they make Trump look and his followers, the better Biden looks. Because if you said anything good about Biden and his followers, Trump would look really bad. Or sorry, Biden would look really bad. Okay? But they portray him as this loving, moderate grandfather and so forth. Okay? <clears throat> it's a foil. It's a contrast. One last example here. You think of Saul and David. Saul makes David look better. David was far from perfect. David makes Saul look even worse. 
the contrast is there. So now back to our point with some of these examples. We do make God look good when he punishes us for our sin. It shows that he is righteous. He doesn't overlook sin. He doesn't just say, ah, don't worry about it. When he punishes our sin, God looks like the God we want to worship and serve. He looks like that judge who is just. And we say, yes, good job. You, you upheld the law. But how is that fair? This is really what the objections are driving at. Should I not be rewarded for making God look good? Should Saul be praised for being such a selfish ruler? Of course not, Paul says. So let's now bring in this fourth objection where if what I've just been saying in the last few minutes is not clear from the third objection, now it is. And the fourth one is, for if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? Now, that's just plain. That's exactly what Paul is addressing here. Notice Paul uses the word for liar and truth here, just like we saw last time in verse 4. So he's tying all these ideas together. Many times, multiple objections have one basic problem with it okay, and what they're addressing. But simply, if my lies show forth God's truthfulness, why am I judged? And the pronoun there in verse 7, why am I, I also still judged as a sinner? It's, it's very emphatic. So again, maybe Paul was dealing not with a, a polite objector, <laughs> But somebody was shaking their fist and, you know, their veins were popping out and such. Why am I a sinner if this is true? And so, again, as you think of some contrasts here, you know, you think of the dark cloud and compare that when the sun comes out. The sun looks brighter when there is a dark cloud and the dark cloud looks darker. When God shines his light, we look even darker and he looks even brighter. So then why am I judged for that is the objection. Okay. Sinning more to make God look better is a ridiculous idea. And that's what he gets at then in verse 8. For why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. <clears throat> All right, now let me uh, take these ideas of Paul and put it in this way. If God planned for Adam to sin, and that plan for Adam to sin is going to show forth God's righteousness, then why is Adam judged? Okay. And then add the thought, if what Adam did represented every one of us, then why are we being judged for God planning for Adam to sin? That does not seem fair at all. Now let me take that 
personal thought and make it even more personal. Think of that evil that has happened in your life. Maybe there's abuse. Maybe it's a health problem. Maybe it's a relationship challenge that you've had. Whatever it is. God planned for that in your life too. To demonstrate his greatness, his righteousness, his love, his goodness. Boy, it seems like we're just pawns in the game of God here, doesn't it? It does not seem fair that God would just do whatever he wants with us. Does it mean that the evil that he planned is good? Do you see where these objections are going? Do you see why Paul is touching on these things? These are important questions. And not only does he mention it here, but he's going to say even more in Romans 9 and even other passages. So let me use a specific one. And of course, in our family, it's very easy for us to use Anna's situation in this context. We can say that Anna's cancers and her health issues have resulted in many blessings. They have shown forth God's goodness, his greatness. They have shown forth God as being God. It's been a blessing for Anna. It has been a blessing for our family and for others. But it just seems a bit masochistic on God's point, uh, from God's perspective here, right? I mean, why would you want to give a three and a half year old girl cancer? I mean, that just doesn't seem very kind. And furthermore, does it make the cancer good? Do, do you hear the legitimate objection in these things? But also, do you hear the human component of these arguments? And as Paul says, their condemnation is just here at the end of verse 8. Okay? For us to question God is what sinful humans do. For us to question, is God just in what he does for us? In the end, that that deserves condemnation. Because how often do we actually ask it righteously? Usually it's with an accusation. And so to bring it back then to what Paul is saying here in Romans, if everyone is a sinner, Jew and Gentile. And if every one of us deserves judgment because of it, if we can do nothing to save ourselves, if there is nothing that we can do to please God, and if everything that we do is a demonstration of our sin, even our righteous things, if it's still a demonstration of our idolatry and hypocrisy and rebellion, And if all these things make God look better, why am I not blessed in some way by my usefulness to him? All right. Well, I've already given some of Paul's answer here, but let's now focus specifically on how he answers these objections. And the first one is a logical one, and that's in verse 6. 
And again, it says, certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? So do you see the logic in his response here? If God is unjust, remember the question there in verse 5, is God unjust to inflict wrath? Hey, well, if he is unjust, then how can he justly judge the world? That makes no sense. Justice and injustice can't both be the same thing. It's absurd. It's a logical fallacy. Good and evil cannot both be good or evil. And if that were true, then God would not be God. And there would be no morality at all. So the, the, the implication of this idea that God is somehow unjust to punish us, that just totally flies in the face of logic, let alone what the Bible teaches us. Well, let me read here just briefly in Genesis 18. Remember, this is when Abraham was talking with God about Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and so on. And Abraham says in verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the, the judge of all the earth do right? And the assumed answer in the Hebrew is yes here. Then from Deuteronomy, this is chapter 32, verse 4, Moses says, God is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And we could look at hundreds more that would say the same thing. But Paul's first response here is, we all know that God is righteous. So to say that God is somehow unjust in punishing us, that just, that just flies in the face of not only what the Bible says, not only what God has revealed in general revelation, but it flies in the face of just logic and reason. It doesn't make any sense. But he also speaks theologically here, and we see that a bit more in uh, verse 8. Let us do evil that good may come. Um, I've, I've touched on this some already. Now, let me first say this. Some people have tried to say that Paul answers a question with a question, which means he's not really answering the question. <laughs> and maybe you've thought that also. And We read from Romans 9 a little bit ago. You know, it, it seems like Paul doesn't ever answer the question in some ways. And in some ways we can say that. Paul says, God can do anything he wants. Okay, who are we to object? He's the potter, and we are the clay. But here, his emphasis is this. Doing more evil to receive more good things is just a total contradiction. That flies in the face of everything good. God does forgive. God does give good blessings. But to do evil in order to receive more of those is craziness and that again is his response here in verse 8 which is a response again to the question why am I still judged as a sinner now Paul is going to expand on this question at the end of chapter 5 into chapter 6 let's just read a little bit of it now um, he does go in a slightly different direction here but it is a related one in Romans 5, verse 20, notice how he uh, presents it here. Moreover, the law entered so that the offense might abound. Now, chew on that a moment. God gave the law so we would sin more. 
not just to expose our sin, but so that we would sin more. And then he says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So even though we've sinned more because the law has been given, God's grace is greater. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he says, chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Okay, or Romans 3, verse 8, let us do evil that good may come. Now, do you see the difference? Here in Romans 5 and 6, he's talking specifically to professing believers. In Romans 3, verse 8, it does sound a bit broader in the way he words it. But in the end, he's saying the same thing. And and, and so note in verse 2, here in Romans 6, Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or let me bring in Paul's words, I speak as a man. This is the way unbelievers think. Unbelievers think, okay, I'm going to sin more, so I'll get more benefit. I'll give you a few examples of this. When we were in in Dyersburg, uh, we were there uh, during the time when there was no pregnancy center, and one started while we were there. And uh, the comments were made how the young girls would frequently get pregnant on purpose, so they'd get more money from the government. They were doing evil so that good would result. They'd have more money for their family. Or think of the classroom. Especially when there's a group project, the smart kids do all the work, right? And that's because the not as smart, or maybe you should say the more lazy students say, hey, well, I'm not going to do so much so the smart kids do all the work and we'll all get a better grade, right? Or in the workplace, what we've seen here in the last uh, few years especially, I'm not going to look for work because I make more money while I'm on unemployment. Here are just a few examples of doing evil so that good might result. But the ends do not justify the means, Paul is saying. It's ridiculous in the end. It is absurd and it is worthy of condemnation. Though God does overcome our sin with his grace, this is no justification for sinning. There's no justification to excuse our sin or to increase our sin and indulge in it. Now, it is possible that Paul, in part, is correcting misunderstanding to his teaching. Okay. But the way Paul responds here in verses 1 to 8, and in light of what we've seen here today, I speak as a man, and their condemnation is just, and language like that, it sure sounds like Paul is uh, addressing not just misunderstandings, but objections. That people were uh, throwing at Paul. And you can understand why. The equating of Jew and Gentile, Christian and non-Christian, as equally sinful and worthy of judgment, not only seems to make ungodliness useless, it seems to encourage sin and to make God appear to be unjust, even sinister and wicked. But Paul emphatically says that is not the case. 
God is righteous to judge not only the, the pagan out there, but even the Jew and the Christian, because we are all sinners. It's not unfair. We're not perfect. We haven't kept his law. It doesn't violate God's character when he punishes a sinner. And even though it makes him look good, hey, what else are you going to do? Is the judge going to say, you know, this is going to make me look good, so I'm not going to throw this person in jail? I mean, that, that's ridiculous. Now, we have woke teaching that would counter these thoughts, but anyway. Okay. What Paul is saying is that my teaching does not violate God's t- character. My teaching does not violate God's promises because God's character cannot change. God cannot do anything wrong. And he promised to curse the disobedient. And in the end, that's all of us. And we must acknowledge this. And so in answering these objections, he is pressing his point home even more, which now means we are ready to hear his final summary in verses 9 to 20. All right, now, let me do a couple things here to bring it all together. First of all, Paul is just, can you say, teasing us a little bit. He's just giving us short answers here. We wish he would say more. This adds to some of the difficulty of understanding this passage. But if God planned for Adam to sin and God arranged it so Adam's sin represents us, how is that fair? Well, that question he is going to answer further in Romans 5. And he's going to talk about our union with Adam and our union with Christ. We cannot be united to Christ unless we are united to Adam. And so Paul will say more about this. In Romans 9, Paul is going to answer about the fairness and the righteousness of God by not only saying what he says here, but then adding the idea of election. And we read that a moment ago, or a few moments ago. Um, God elects to save some and not others. This is not unfair because none of us deserve salvation at all. None of us deserve to be spared the judgment. And so God can save whomever he pleases, like he said regarding Pharaoh. And again, he is the potter, we are the clay. So he'll say more about these issues. And then, as I also said here a little bit ago, that Paul will answer some of the objections about God's character here in chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. But it's not so much, it seems unjust that God punishes his own people. But actually, the bigger question, it seems unjust that God would bless sinners. That's the real rub. How can God be just and bless us who do not deserve the blessing at all? That's the real challenge to God's character. And that's what he's going to address uh, in verses 21 through 26. All right, now the second thing I want to do here to try to bring all this together is this. Two two main thoughts. First of all, (laughs) you notice uh, this, uh, I guess you could say, lesson from Paul. Whenever we speak the truth, especially when we are talking about the pervasiveness of our sin, Expect to receive objections. People don't like this. So if you're witnessing to someone, if 
you're talking to someone even in a, another denomination that emphasizes free will and so forth, right? Don't, don't be surprised if you receive objections or even slander. But notice how Paul words this in verse 8. He says, uh, we are slanderously reported. Some affirm that we say. It seems like Paul is identifying with the other apostles. It's not just his message here that they're objecting to. It's the message of the apostles. And so then for us, if we are going to teach the same things as Paul, don't be surprised if people slander us. So just that uh, thought here briefly. But now more to the point. Let me expand on this thought here just briefly. God is not the problem we are. So let me read here. This is from Douglas Moo. And uh, this is his final paragraph on this section. He says it this way. The problem Paul attacks in these verses is not confined to the people of God of his day. All too often, we Christians have presumed that God's grace to us exempts us from any concern about our sin. Particularly is this a danger among Christians who share with me the belief that God is sovereign over all, including our salvation. Too easily we forget that God's ultimate concern is for his own glory and not for our blessing. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. Too easily we forget that God's ultimate concern is for his own glory and not for our blessing. It's not that God isn't concerned for our blessing, but that's not his ultimate concern. So when that hard thing happens in your life, when you come here for worship, the ultimate goal is not to receive a blessing. The ultimate goal is to worship God and to give him honor and for him to glorify himself. Now, if that happens, there will be blessings. But the goal is not for blessing. God's not just up there trying to figure out how to bless us. He's up there, so to speak, working how to glorify himself. And because he is not selfish or cruel, there will be blessings for his people. Now he continues. He says, God's righteousness is beautifully displayed when he judges as well as when he saves. We want to stand on the promises, and this is entirely appropriate, but we must not forget that God's promises in both the Old and New Testaments uh, to rebuke and chastise his people for sin as well as to bless them out of the abundance of his grace. And so God promises not just good things, but even judgment. And so, let me put it this way, if you think all this idea of righteousness and judgment just is a bit too much, if you think the ideas of election and God planning everything is just, just seems totally unfair to my choice, if you think God ultimately being concerned about his glory is just totally selfish on his part, if we're just pawns in God's game... And listen to what Paul is saying. 
because he's answering these thoughts here and elsewhere. And ultimately, it comes down to the fact that we need to remember that God is God and we're not. That he is perfect and we are not. And if we come to terms with those ideas, then the ideas of the gospel become much more joyous and good news. And so we need to come to terms with these thoughts. And until we do, we will object. And we will blame God. And we will not receive very many blessings, or at least not as many. And so here are a few thoughts on this rather uh, challenging and, can you say, sticky issue. But in the end, let's hear what God says through his apostle. And let's submit to it. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you for your word. We are thankful, Lord, that you have a perspective that is far beyond anything we can see and understand. We are thankful, Lord, that you have made this perspective known to us, even here as Paul's responding to objections. We praise you, our Lord, that you are God, that you are righteous, that you are good, that you are in charge of all things. There is nothing that can violate your character. There's nothing that you do that goes against yourself. We are so thankful, Lord, that we, you are not like those Greek and Roman gods that are capricious and evil and selfish and so on. We thank you, Lord, that you're so different from that. And though it does raise questions in our minds, even though sometimes, especially as we, we think as a sinner, it seems unfair, we are thankful, Lord, that you are God and that you always do what is good and right. And so, Lord, may this be our foundation on which we stand for these matters. And may we then see the goodness within it. Lord, we um, just ask for your, uh, your blessing and that you would um, soften our hearts to, to hear these truths, that you would give us a peace as we rest in your sovereign um, plan and purposes for our lives. And may you then ultimately receive glory through it all. And so we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.